right, hey everybody, uh, welcome back to, I'm not even sure which episode this is going to be, of the Shooting Time podcast, um, sitting here at home, just got done hunting a while ago today, kind of a glum, gloomy day here in South Dakota, and I've got uh, a gentleman from uh, Banded on the line, on the other end of the line with Mr. Josh Dockin, he's a guy that I've known, uh, I've known of him for probably longer than I knew him because... We're actually both from the same hometown, um, and oddly enough, it's probably been about 20 years, maybe, that we kind of were hunting in the same time period, maybe not quite that long, hunting yeah. in the same same locales and the same, uh, a lot of the same places, and we never really met each other or knew each other other than as uh, competing groups of hunters due to what probably, you must be what, like six year age difference probably. <clears throat> something yeah, like that uh yeah probably something like that you were always getting my fields <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> we had one that was like you guys were the main competition i think for our fields so i think there was always a little bit of uh not disdain but um just uh kind of uh that angst against the other the mm-hmm. other hunting group in town or one of the other hunting groups in town but you guys were i think like us you were very uh, uh aggressive in terms of trying to secure fields for hunting so i know um one of the spots that we always hunted uh i think we hunted at the same time actually even one day i don't know if either one of us did very well that day or not but anyways josh is uh he's the director of marketing for band is that correct yep director of marketing for banded uh banded brands so banded avery and ghg okay cool yeah it's kind of uh the uh, catch-all for a huge amount of waterfall product out on the market. Um, and he's just another guy that uh, is from kind of my my hometown that is either involved, well, obviously he's involved, um, but there's a lot of other folks that are either involved directly or indirectly in the waterfall hunting world, whether they're guides, um, photographers like myself, um, other folks that are involved, call makers, other people that are involved in uh, the industry. So I just want to get him on and talk to him about a bunch of things, but I was just going to tell him that I was back in Waseca uh, a little over a week ago and did some goose hunting and uh, it was not a terrible hunt. We had, we had two really good days on the, we actually decided to goose hunt during the Minnesota duck opener, which is something you would never typically see me do, but we had kind of some cool opportunities to goose hunt. So, we hunted on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of that opening week of the regular season. And uh, we had two good hunts on, on some molt migrators that we always talk about. And I did that podcast, obviously, last week. Saturday was a really good day. Um, we shot well, we shot our three of us, four of us. We shot our 12 uh, pretty, ha- pretty quick, actually, quicker than probably really we planned on doing. Um, half of those were, were migrators. And... I just, Josh, was that something that, like, I don't think you guys didn't really take advantage of that. And I know for quite a few years, we didn't do anything with that molt migration at all back home. Mm -hmm. Now it seemed like, of course, uh, everyone knows that the early goose season is, uh, is a surefire way to get some action. Um, but as you were talking, I, I, I naturally wandered. And I haven't hunted that area for probably 20 years. Um, it, well, less than 20 years, probably about 12 years. Yeah. Um, 
but uh but i was naturally wondering you know what which where the birds were 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 roosting or um uh hanging out oh, yeah. at um and where they well if you were hunting off a loon or or silver or another lake in the area i've just i was curious to to where you were which birds you were hunting as we used to call it. but no i've yeah. never um I, I never really did I, I saw it at times um but i never really never really did take advantage of that um it was the, one of the those, migration it was one of those things that was hard like it was hard to get people to do it because it wasn't a for sure thing because you weren't going to a field that had geese in it. And so you were just relying on, and you are relying totally on birds happening to fly over you, even though you know it's probably going to happen, but it's just not that guaranteed, you know, shoot them up type deal like you're going to if you have a feed field. So it was hard. But yeah, when, you know, you're talking about the fields, and it's one of the things that everyone who hunts their local areas has is, you know, everybody knows where the birds are. And uh, we weren't hunting any of the town birds. Um, it's like a typical Minnesota town. Um, all the all the geese get pushed off of all the water in the area, and they end up on the lake that's in the local town. And we had two lakes in town, and uh, Loon Lake in particular. I don't know; it holds anywhere from what five hundred to a thousand, probably in early in the September season, I would say. And we would line up around town, basically on the edges of the city limits, essentially, and hunt those birds as they came off, and catch them either before they got to a refuge or a, a feed field that they couldn't, that no one could hunt or whatever. But yeah, we were hunting, um, we're kind of hunting off of, off of moon and marsh. I guess you could, you could say that a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, those, I don't know if that's where the birds, I mean, so, half the birds came from that vicinity and half came from somewhere miles up North that were, that were definitely on the move. Um, but I did go down, you mentioned Silver Lake. I was actually down in that area too. So if anyone's in that vicinity, I could give you a uh, a pin to a field that had a bunch of mallards in a flooded corn spot. So hit me up if you want. For but, a fee. Huh? For a fee. Yeah, for a small fee, finder's fee. <laughs> but, um, you know, although I maybe you'd have better luck of getting permission on it because I got shut down. So that would have, uh, that would definitely, mallards and flooded corn would definitely have superseded a, uh, a goose hunt in my book. So, but the guy said his. This is this is the typical type of response I get when I ask for permission is his cousins hunt, um, so I couldn't hunt it, but he was going to pick the field the next day, which would have, of course, kicked the birds out. And so I said, oh, well, they'll be gone, you know, so maybe I could go in. Oh, no, no my cousins will hunt it this weekend. Like, oh, okay. So, of course, he didn't understand how the duck duck thing would work. If, if you drove a combine through the field, they probably wouldn't be there much after that, but... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, anyway, so that was uh, watching a few hundred ducks plop into that flooded field. Got my uh, heart racing a little bit, which actually now that I've gotten back home here in South Dakota, we've gotten a ton of rain lately, and I've seen that uh, a lot here in the last probably I've been scouting my butt off the last five or six days since right before season. And, man, we've got ducks just swimming around in corn, flooded parts of cornfields and marshes that are like all of our sloughs and our marshes are way over full so they're out of the banks and they're up in the bean fields and we have a lot of ducks around for i guess whatever october 2nd right now so yeah you're, you're getting me excited <laughs> yeah you've only got what a month and a half to go till season starts let's see uh october, yeah month and a half i'm I, i'm actually going to be doing quite a bit of duck hunting in missouri 
in the early part of November. So not, not quite that oh, long, yeah. but little, still, still got a little bit. And, uh, it certainly doesn't feel like duck hunting weather quite yet. So I'm not internally, I'm, I'm, I'm just not in that mindset. Um, but yeah, the, 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 just knowing that there's ducks up there is good. Oh yeah. It's, it's one of those things I would have a hard time living much further South than I do because we were lucky that our season starts early and we run, geez, we probably run later than a lot of, a lot of States to the South of us. We run till mid, mid January, just within an hour of me. So I can hunt kind of all over the dang place. And, uh, for a long, long time, if I had to sit and watch people, you know, shooting ducks on Instagram and Facebook and all that, I, it drive me insane. (laughs) I I don't think I'd be able to take it. So it's tough. Yeah. Uh, and I was actually talking with a guy from Kentucky yesterday, and he was saying the same thing about you just like it's hammered into you. You see all these dudes in, especially in Canada, they're starting on the first of September and they're shooting everything. And even you know, I, at that point, I still have three weeks to go myself, and we're near the top of the migration or top of the season starting rotation. And uh, it's it's still a long three weeks for me to wait from that point on. So yeah, if I was down there, I would I would not dig it. You know, I was, one thing I was going to mention to you, Josh, is uh, this is, might be a somewhat interesting story, and I'd be curious to see if you guys have anything similar from when you hunted this. But uh, so, so this town we both lived in it was Wasika, Minnesota. And if you ever Google it, there's this Loon Lake kind of on the western part of town, middle part of town, whatever. And these geese would come off, and it seemed like they typically – went to go feed in the mornings to the north. So there was a lot of the fields around there were, it wasn't super easy to get permission because there's enough guys that hunted that things were usually spoke for. So there was one landowner in particular, um, guy was about, what well, he's about five, four and about three fifty. Tim mm-hmm. fish, Tim Fisher was his name. He was as round as he was tall. He was a pig. I think he's a pig farmer and a, and a crop farmer. He's an awesome guy. And he let, pretty much anyone have permission on anything that he wanted. And he had this right straight north of the lake, just past the city limits, maybe half a mile, maybe not even that far. Um, this kind of little half, half dome type of a hill that rose up and uh, it was terraced a little bit or almost terraced. It was terraced with crops where the crops were rotated. So there always be corn, alfalfa and beans around this hill. And these geese would come, come to feed up straight north off the lake and this hill happened to be right there and what we would do is you know we'd always carry in like a hundred bigfoots because we couldn't drive on it because alfalfa we carry in like a hundred bigfoots and we'd stand in the corn and it'd be four or five of us and we would just raise an absolute ruckus with calls and with like big triple flags and double flags and basically make as much noise and uh commotion as we could we call these geese off of like, you know, probably within a half mile to a mile either way of us. And the cool thing about it was that you never, ever saw a goose landed in that field. Like, I don't think over all the years I ever lived there, I never saw a goose sitting in those fields. But in the September seasons, we'd kill a hundred, if not more yeah. out, of, out of that field. Just our, just our group, me and my friends and other people hunted it other days too. So I mean, there's probably 150 geese killed out of there every year maybe not every year but most years and uh so it, it was just like it was one of those 
places that you hunt that's super rewarding to hunt because you were bringing them there. There was, I mean, they weren't coming there. It wasn't to give me hunt. It was all based on your calling and your big decoy spreads and all that kind of stuff. So it was, yeah. It was, and if you, uh, to, to add to that too, if, if you, if you could draw up, um, an ideal trafficking situation where you've got visibility, um, hide and, mm-hmm. and, and really and traffic. The, yeah. And traffic too. Um, and, and even like the, the elevation coming into play where, where they would land pretty much downhill of you. Yeah. Um, not, not a super steep slope, but, but definitely downhill view, which, which makes shooting very easy. Oh yeah. So, I mean, you can't, I don't even know. I don't know if I could draw up a better trafficking scenario than that. And like you said, they, they come up off the lake. Um, they could see you immediately. Um, and you could even pull some that maybe we're, we're thinking of going West or East. Yep. Oh yeah. Um, we several oh, times pulled them off of like, people listening won't know but like where manthe's house was over there west of ways and east over the mm-hmm. highway we pulled them off of there quite a bit so it was it, it was the coolest thing ever yeah it, uh it, and like you said there, there was absolutely zero reason for them to land there um and they never did unless unless you were there uh yeah hunting. but it, it was rewarding like you said you you got to see calls work and flags work um and it was it was super cool. The other the cool thing about it too is that, especially like in the early season, um, I mean, you could, I don't know if you ever had any of these hunts, uh, Phil, but you could get um, in a situation where you, you get a flock and, you know, seven and nine of them are banded. No, <laughs> let's not even not, talk about that because I always heard about you guys getting those like the day after we would hunt. <laughs> and yeah. we would, we'd go and kill 100 geese, like 20, 18 geese on a day and, and no bands because they banded in Wasika on that lake and we, we never got bands. And then, you know, of course we hear through the grapevine that you guys would go and have that seven or eight bird. You'd shoot seven or eight or 10 or whatever. And they're almost all banded. We're like, ah, and yeah. drove you crazy. Yeah, that's exactly how it happened too. I mean, you would, you would, you would hunt and harvest flock after flock after flock and no bands. And then you just get that one flock that, um, you know, all was banded together and you, like I said, you could shoot, you were shooting down at them and, and because of the, the corn was generally still standing for most of the oh, yeah. year. Yep, it was. Um, the hide was, you, you were perfect. You couldn't, you couldn't get a better hide. So you could hide a lot of guys too. And you're standing um, and you could, when you were shooting. Yeah. I mean, you could, you just, nothing, nothing that came in there got away. No, and, it was, it was a pretty brutal spot for them to get out of. I went yeah, by, I yeah. went by it the other day though. And it's, oh, it's not even huntable anymore. There's no way, uh, a bank down at the, I think it's a bank down at the bottom of the hill. Um, so it'd be, it'd be pretty much impossible to hunt if it, if it's not even in the city limits now, it might be. Um, one interesting thing about that was, and this might be something you guys had too. Um, so our high school, our town high school was, uh, what was it? A quarter of a mile from the bottom of that field, maybe half mile, third of a mile. It wasn't far. Yeah, the, it, it was close. The baseball fields were, yeah. Yeah, the baseball field like, and the practice football fields are right there to the point like, yeah. where we had to call them from landing in the off of that green grass sometimes. You, you drag them up the hill off of that. Well, one morning we were out there. There was like three or four of us. And oh, it got to be, I don't know, 8 o'clock, probably 8.15, something like that. And in Waseca, the marching band was this, this gigantic thing. It was, you know, they won always, they'd go travel over and they were in different 
played in Super Bowls and Rose Bowls and all that kind of stuff. And it was this huge thing. And so they were out practicing in the morning um, in the football. They're legit. What's that? I tell people I tell people about them all the time. That, that it's not something that people think about, but we had like a, a, literally an elite marching band. Oh, and yeah. to your point, they got to somehow, you know, they got to practice like all the time beyond, you know, school. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Designated hour. I mean, they were out there at six fifteen with the, uh, with that little, uh, uh Chick clicker, uh, the clicker yeah, thing, the, metronome. Uh, metronome. That's the word. Yep. Yeah. They, yep. Well, they, used to, they used to march by my house. I lived down the road of the schools on, and they would march past my house every morning in the summer at like seven, you know, back when I wanted to sleep until 10. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't appreciate that, but so this morning, say mid September, you know, school just started. We were all out of school at this point in time and we're hunting the spot and, and all of a sudden here comes the band and they're playing, there's music going a flock of like, I don't know, six or eight geese come up off the lake and we see them and we start calling at them and the band's playing in the background and these geese come in and we, we cut into this flock and boom, 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 boom. And the whole band scattered. They took off running because they thought someone was shooting at them. So that's how close we were to, to town on that field. So I don't know if you ever had, had any of those. Maybe they learned what was going on after that first time, but we kind of sat there. We felt bad, but at the same time, it was hilarious. So Yeah, I did have some of those. Um, I think uh, – I, th- I think I, I was relying on uh, the the football squad a little bit, um, but the marching band too. Yeah, it, it definitely helped if there was activity on those fields because they wanted to. They kept wanted them to off. Go there. Oh yeah, I kept them off there. I think we had a kid. I think it was one of the guys I was hunting with. His brother um, actually went out and scared some off there for us one time off of the, the practice field. So we, I don't remember if we got those ones or not, but at least it kept them from decoying more birds in there. Cause we all know that having a, a live bird at a few hundred yards away from me is about the worst thing you could possibly have. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was cool that, that deal really kind of introduced me to the power of, not maybe good goose calling, but you know it was we were all pretty good goose callers at the time, and but it really showed me like what the power of multiple um, good goose callers could do. I mean, if you put three, because you could watch like say you saw a flock off in the distance and you one guy started calling and no response, you know, and then two seconds later the second guy got his calls out and got hit and he starts calling and you'd have a little bit of a response. Then all of a sudden that third and fourth guy would kick in and just like that, those geese would spin on a dime or bank over to you or whatever it was. And as soon as you hit that, those, that other, that third and fourth guy, it was unreal what the difference was between even one and two good callers. So yeah, I, I don't it hunt. Was crazy. And, Go ahead. And, and uh, this was all just, just for a little context for the listeners, this, this was all kind of going down in the early two thousands when the, when the short read Goose calls really kind of um, oh, for sure getting popular and rolling, and so because because there was limited areas and and you know different groups and, and this is just our area and I'm sure it happened everywhere else too, but it kind of was like the the iron sharpens iron thing where you it, to 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 be successful you had to be able to traffic birds and call because you couldn't get, you couldn't always get on the, the X so yeah, to speak. So Rarely. you had to call them, you had to flag them. You had, you had to 
learn how to hide and set up decoys and all the things that are important for successful hunting. And so what's crazy about that is that the, the amount, and I tell, talk, tell people this all the time, the amount of like good um, and not, not really good, like elite caliber callers that have come out of that little town and that little area, even from, if you go from Wasika to Rochester to St. Cloud, that little yep, triangle there, yep. that area, I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's no, I mean, per capita, there's gotta be. Southern Illinois would probably be the one, that'd be the one place I could think of where there's a a very high density of people that were called like that. Yeah. Because you were forced forced to. Yeah. And it reminds me a lot of a, of a mini version of a Stuttgart where the same thing happened there um, with duck calling, you know, uh, before the mojo and and all that stuff, the, the calling was, was the deciding the factor was yeah deciding factor so you you just sort of breed this population of of really good callers it's it's super unique um it's something that i it's, it's fun to look back on and, th- and just kind of think about some of the names of people that have come out of that area and went on to you know have outfitting services or work in the out, in the outdoor industry or even um you know there's some champion callers that it, competitively that uh that have come out of there too so for sure i think i think that's to me that's that's really kind of a cool thing about that area that um i always have appreciated what's one of the things that kept me in it too because when as you're younger and you're growing up and i i mean i probably would have stayed in duck hunting regardless i mean it's just how i was but it's one of those things that when you have those friends that are like that and they're that into it you almost put it even as a competition amongst your friends you know, who can be better, who can be the better goose caller, um, you know, and it was like, not you against other groups, but it was like, you kind of like internal competition, you know, like it was never mean or anything, but we always wanted to be, who could be the better goose caller amongst us and who could do this note and who could do that. And, and, it, and it benefited all us all mutually and probably as a, as people, hunters in the town, it benefited all because now all of a sudden you go and you hunt somewhere else and you don't have to always hunt that same way that it seems like when you're hunting uh, the X field. So it's like, it's a breeze compared to the other stuff. So it is, it's, it's a very unique situation and it'd be kind of neat to actually um, do a little, little in document that little, that, yeah, like a little yeah. in-depth history on that. Like um, the guy yesterday, I talked to Ryan Graves and he'll be the podcast that comes out before this, uh, hopefully tonight. And he's talking about, some of these big historic names. He's a, a huge guy in terms of like waterfall nostalgia and history and collecting. And some of the books he talked about the, of places and some of the hunting books about just Minnesota in general, uh, like duck calls of Minnesota, duck decoys of Minnesota. There's probably a duck boats of Minnesota. It'd be cool to do something like that. Like duck and goose call hunters of Minnesota and just to, very cool. And to have that, have it, to, if a guy could put that together, that would be a fun, fun thing. I think just our little town would have to be pretty heavily involved in that yeah. along with probably, probably another half dozen to 10 towns that are, are very into it too. But be yeah, neat to- definitely in the discussion. Now, and another thing completely unrelated, unique about Wasika as well. And this had sizzled out many years before Phil and I even existed probably, but uh, her, the original herders, um, oh, yeah. the, the absolutely, you know, the, the, I don't remember their names, but the brothers who started Herders, um, yeah. the original, original Cabela's, came, 
Yeah, the original Cabela's really they uh they, that started in little old Wasika too. That yeah, that's, that's crazy. Too. Yeah, there was the so anybody who pays attention to to any waterfall history or even maybe a little bit of uh, older decoys will know about Herder's decoys. But I mean, they made everything from oh old duck boats like two point duck boats, um, like someone like a Karstens. Um, calls yeah calls they made clothes they had this all in their showroom here in in Wasika there and my grandpa actually worked at that store for oh geez it was like the career his career for the last part of his life I guess so and it closed it was it actually was there um I remember walking in to the store one time and there was a, a polar bear a mounted stuffed polar bear Right when you walk in the door, standing on its hind legs, and that was what greeted you when you walked in. Um, because, I mean, the herders were, they hunted everything, and they were very wealthy, of course, with that business. And um, they hunted all over the place. But duck hunting, like, I mean, they were kind of the, they were the original waterfowl brand, I guess I mm-hmm. would say. I mean, I don't, maybe I'm yeah. speaking out of yeah. my out of my, my knowledge base there. But I, as far as I know, they kind of were that first company that spread out and did more than just one thing, but they, I mean, they would be like the predecessor to, to, well, you know, they were both cause they would be like the predecessor to Avery who, who Avery has made everything under the sun forever, but they're probably closer to Cabela's cause Cabela's does make their own and retails it in a store. But either yeah. way they were, they did that the whole, the whole gamut of waterfowl stuff. So it was kind of cool to have that little bit of history. And whenever I tell, especially an older duck hunter, that I'm from Wasika, that's the first thing they'll ask is if I knew of the herders at all. Like, yeah. yeah, it's cool. I've got some friends uh, whose you know, dads and stuff worked there as as young kids or whatever, and they've got some some old memorabilia, um, you know, boxes of old stuff, and it's really really cool to go see some of that stuff. Um, uh, matter of fact, I need to get some photos of that and. and share it anyway but that uh yeah that just so cool and i think i don't don't know for sure but i think that they may have um paved the way for how the cabela's brothers started with um the mail order catalog i I think the herders had a form of that they did Um, actually yes they had i believe they had a catalog um i think it was more of like almost like newspaper version rather mm -hmm. than like you know the nice glossy type deal but yeah they had they did have that um, I think the Wasika County Historical Society has a big, a big display of herder stuff, or maybe it was a temporary deal. But a uh, guy that we both know, that Terry Middlestead, he has a pretty significant collection of herders, herder stuff, I believe. So I've seen parts of it come and go on Facebook. I don't, I don't know what he has anymore, but I know at one point in time he had all old pamphlets and, um, like you know kind of like books that they would put out about with advice and tons of old decoys and the weights. And I think he might even have a boat. I'm not sure on that, but like an old herders, like duck boat, a lot of that stuff, especially in that local area, it has a lot of collectible value. So it's kind of a, kind of a neat little side note to that, to our uh, hometown and our connection to each other, I guess. So, um, yeah. but anyways, one, so, you know, so you're the, as the director of marketing, um, I, I've i seen a little bit of what you do, and obviously talking over different times, I know a little bit about what you do. And what I've kind of gathered is that um, as a marketing guy, 
your job is similar to what my one of my first jobs out of college was was um, as a marketing basically marketing coordinator um, and I realized that if if you have the word marketing in your title that you essentially have you you uh, take on any role or project or job that isn't specifically designed or designated to someone else yeah, exactly because we had exactly. someone doesn't know how to do it uh give that to marketing is basically how it ended up being and and uh i joke about this all the time but how it kind of to your point works with us it seems like is like if it involves a computer for some reason it's marketing's <laughs> job I think- <laughs> like I, a, a example of one i had recently is a you know imagine like a a word document um that has you know, text, not, not related to, you know, just a company, um, sort of memorandum type thing. Um, but there was, there was logos needing to be placed on it. Right. So, uh, let's give that to marketing and let them, you know, since since you just know how to do everything evidently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is, Mm -hmm. that would be very comparable to, uh, to what I ended up, I got, I, this was for a cable company that I worked for. And I mean, I was like, I was calling technicians and telling them, how to like set up their machines and all this and that. And just cause I was in marketing, I was the guy who had to do it rather than their actual boss who should have been the guy doing it. And, uh, but anyway, so I mean like, so you've been with banded for quite a while. How did, how did you roll into, to that, like to a, to a, how did you get into the waterfall industry as a job? I mean, cause that's something sure. that I know that, there's a ton of people who want who want to have a job in the waterfall realm yeah and but like me when i got out of college i thought like honestly when i left college i thought my job i wanted to work for avery that was what i wanted i interviewed at drake because they had an opening didn't get it and then went to work for cabela's and so that was kind of my gig in the waterfall world i guess in the hunting world um so, but, but like, no one really knows exactly what they want to do or what jobs are out there. And so, how did you yeah. kind of roll into that? Yeah. So, um, and I have a, I have some some thoughts too on on getting into the industry as a whole. But um, I'll start with me personally how I got into it because I get I get asked that question all, all the time too. Is you know how do you how do you get into the waterfowl industry? And for me, <clears throat> for me, when I so back to when I was a teenager in, in Wasika, um, hunting geese and falling in love with it and, you know, literally eat, eating, sleeping and breathing it. I got into the, to the goose calling stuff, to the, the short read goose call revolution. And I just kept practicing and wanting to get, you know, I wanted to be the best guy in the group. And then I wanted to be the best guy in the town. And then I wanted to be the best guy in Minnesota and, and so on. You know how that kind of spirals. Oh, yeah. yep. and, and not that I was, not that I was, but that was my mindset is I, I was all in on it. I wanted to be, you know, the best. And I, I really kind of fell in love with it as an instrument. Um, and, and so I got into the competition calling is, is sort of my, my first um, entry into it. And, you know, at first it's just going to local contest, um, competing and all that stuff. And then pretty soon, um, you know, a call maker, you know, wants some affiliation to, so you represent their calls. And so that's kind of how I progressed into it. Uh, first insertion point was, was a uh, competitive calling, um, went on, um, years and years later to 
course, getting into guiding um, and outfitting of just a way to kind of extend my, my season and do it more and not have to get a, uh, a big boy job, I guess. Who'd you guide with? So, so um, a couple places, and, and this is actually how um, uh, I got involved with Bandit too. So um, I guided, so I, I started doing a goose hunts and stuff uh, up north with, with various just small, small uh, companies and some even a little bit on my own, just uh, overflow uh, guys would say, Hey, I, I'm booked up, but um, here's a guy over here. And so I kind of got involved that way. And then I wanted to extend my, um, my guiding season. So I started to look for places in the South uh, living in Minnesota at the time that I could, you know, go down and continue my season, you know, down there. Yep. So I started guiding uh, um, in Missouri at a, at a little guide service um, for uh, two or three years. And then I got connected not far from there. Uh, one of my good buddies was, was guiding at the same time um, at a place called wildfowl adventures. Wildfowl okay. Adventures is uh, was owned and operated by Keith Allen and Christian Curtis. Oh, yep. Who at the time were running, uh, I think they were both sales reps at Avery um, pre banded, uh, yeah, banded didn't exist right. at this time. So, so long story short, I, I make that connection with them um, and we hit it off. They just become friends and all that stuff. And, and, through my experience with guiding and, and calling and stuff, you sort of, you sort of educate yourself and, and kind of understand the nuances of, of the industry, at least from a consumer perspective, you know, when you're touching clients every day, you're seeing how they react to products and, and all those kind of things. And you can, and you can offer advice just based on, you know, the fact that you're, you're sitting there every day doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that was, a. Uh, that's how I got started. And then that, that's that relationship, you know, years later, uh, when Christian, uh, Christian Curtis, um, Eric Larsgaard and Rick Frisch all work for Avery, uh, at the time for a long time. And, and they decided that they wanted to, um, go a different direction and, and, and develop products. Um, they felt like they could, they could do something that wasn't being done. So they, they left and started banded and, and so basically what happened was Christian said, uh, Christian called me up and said, Hey, um, we got this, got this thing going and they had, they had already developed it pretty far, but there was no product at market yet. It was still, um, it was still just a name with some product ideas. Um, and, and he basically said, Hey, we need, we need some help. And, and the other thing I had going on at the, at the same time too, was when I was working for, um, when I was doing the guiding stuff, I was also kind of helping some some local call makers kind of start up and develop their, uh, their programs. And one of the things when you're a small business, and this is in any area, any realm of industry, you, you have to be a, um, wear all hat kind of guy. You, you don't have the resources in the, in the funding to, to hire everything out. So you got to learn a lot of, and do a lot of things yeah, yourself. You're, you're the it, you're the marketing, you're the operations, you're the warehouse, you're yes. order taking, all of it. Yes. Yes. And so, and so at this time was what timing wise, it's weird how so much of this is just timing, but, but timing wise, what was also going on um, is the digital world was starting to pick up internet. E-commerce was becoming a thing. Social media was becoming, was, was around. um, And it was, it was a place where marketers were starting to look to reach customers. And so obviously 
you know, with limited resources and funding with the small, you know, businesses and the call makers, that was a great avenue for, um, for reaching customers. One, because it was basically, it was basically just effort. It, there was no, there was no dollar figure associated with it. So I learned social media. I, I started, I bought all kinds of books and, and kind of tried to learn everything I could about it um, and how marketers could approach it and all that. So I, I trained myself on social media. At the same time, I also kind of trained myself in graphic design a little bit, which is weird because I still to this day uh, will do some graphic design. I don't do near as much anymore, but I, I never have ever considered myself like an artist or a, a designer of any sort. I, it was just one of those things where it had to be done. Out of necessity. And, and so I got to learn how to do it, right? I mean, it, it, there's no other option. So I developed some skill sets, which is kind of where I'm going to uh, also talk about um, getting into the industry as, as a whole, my comments on that too, in a little bit. But um, so I developed some skill sets, some things that uh, I could use to provide value to, um, to a business. So, and, and Christian was aware of that. I had, uh, I had started a um, apparel company with another guy and we were kind of selling like waterfowl related t-shirts and stuff like that with different designs and stuff like that. So I was, I was really kind of, you know, touching a lot of different things in that area, which is, it was a need uh, when they, when they started banded is they really needed a guy to, to do that kind of stuff, logo gear. And, um, and we had calls early on too with banded. Um, so I was able to help. Um, and Keith Allen ran that. I was able to help, you know, tune, I, I tuned a lot of duck and goose calls r- right off the bat too. <laughs> you know, all that kind of, I mean, it was, it was, it was crazy the landscape early on uh, with banded and, and, and what, what the needs were then compared to what they are now. But um, yeah, the, 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 the you know, just to reiterate, it was really, I just, the, the relationships with, uh, with Christian and he started and the timing and, and, and the skills that I could provide uh, is how I kind of got started with banded in, in 2012 and um, have, have I've been working there ever since. And so it's been very interesting to see and watch really a startup, um, you know, from the, from the, from the, from inception to from conception to all the way up, you know, to, to where we are now as one of the, uh, I, I guess I would consider us one of the top waterfall brands in the, in the country. Uh, I mean, one of the biggest for sure. No doubt. I would, it's gotta be fairly rewarding to like be a part of that. Like it's neat when you, when you can step in and when everything is rolling and established and it's, it's nice because you don't have to do a lot of work, but it's, it's gotta be way more rewarding when you're the one part of the one helping to establish how, I mean, even basic policies on how you do this and how you work with vendors and, you know, how employee policies and all that kind of stuff that, when you're a brand new company, you pretty much kind of have to start from scratch and, and do all that on your own. So that's got to be more rewarding. I would think than doing, um, just jumping into like, yeah. if you were to have just jumped into Avery after they'd been around for 15 years, I mean, I could relate it even to when I was at Cabela's, when I started at Cabela's in 2003, um, the Oatana store in Minnesota had been in existence for like three years, I think at that point or, something around that time. And I was just, I kind of jumped in and I was just another guy that worked there. Well, when I moved, when we opened the store in Rogers, Minnesota, and I was part of that brand new crew. And I took way more pride in 
how everything went at that store since I was one of the ones basically molding how it went and the success of it and how employees looked at it and all, everything that was involved. So I know that, that that little, having that part of it, almost like it was my own, I mean, not, it wasn't my own, obviously, but almost like it was more my own than the other store was. So. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. And, and, and that's a lot of the way I felt too early on um, and now too, obviously, but uh, I, I definitely took it on as my own. Um, I, uh, you know, it was my baby and I put a lot, uh, we all did. We, we, we all put a lot of, of effort and time into something that, you know, now it's like, it, it seems like gravy, but at the time, I mean, there was, there was several times where, you know, is this going to work? Is this not going to work? Uh, um, but I'm I, sure I, you're kind of in I, limbo. I definitely wouldn't trade that. That That's my favorite part of the whole thing is that um, is building something from scratch and working with your buddies to, to make something really, really cool. Um, especially like the, the guys that are involved that, that I mentioned that started it. I mean, it's not, this is not like, you know, some big corporate thing where you're, you know, there's investors from, from all over the place that, that don't really have much connection with you. I mean, these, this is a tight crew of people who are serious duck hunters, you know, have, well, yeah. have been around for a long time, have, have really earned their right in the space through, being around and, and, and not that you have to be a guide or a, co- a competitive caller, but those two things are, uh, you know, irre- irreplaceable really. You, you just couldn't put, you know, a, a dollar figure on how much they're worth. You just, so well, the value it's, of the it, experience and cool. all that is, like you said, it's something that in the, in the time spent and the devotion to it is, it's something that it's going to help in. And it'd be like, if, uh, archery guy was going to shoot go out and or if a uh, uh, guy who shot his bow every single day wanted to open an archery shop it's that value you can't just have that from someone who doesn't live that you don't you can't you can't train it and you can't you can't really instill it in someone who doesn't have that that built into them same thing with a duck hunter if you're going to open a open a duck hunter a waterfowl company those types of things that that skill is just that little bit of advanced above what the average duck caller or duck hunter is going to have some. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, and it, and that shows too, it, 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 that translates to the, to the product offering, you know, the products that we put out, we we're not going to put products out that don't service the waterfowler, you know, at, at a high need and not to, um, make any product is product plugs or anything like that. But it, it, you know, with the waiters, for example, which is one of the things we're known for. I mean, the only person who could know how terrible neoprene waders were was a duck hunter. <laughs> yeah, someone used <laughs> and so, them. Uh, and so, uh, and, and, uh, and all of it is sort of that same way of, of, of how can we make it more comfortable and more, you know, the, the, that experience outdoors with friends and, and family in the waterfowl blind, you know, how can we enhance that? And that's sort of the, uh, it's one of the things that I, I pride ourselves on and, and certainly other companies have it as well, but we, we really are, everyone is a duck hunter and everyone is a, is a, uh, at a high level, um, very knowledgeable about the sport and, and, and products and all of that stuff. So I think that, um, yeah, that, that stuff is all, all definitely important. And it, and it is been the, 
you know, one of the main reasons why we've been able to, to, to build the brand to where it is, is, um, you know, good, good people, good products. And you can see it and whether it's bandit or other, other related companies, even in other industries, you know, the places that have the folks that love what they're doing. Cause there's a lot of people and a lot of jobs who, from my experience should not be in them. And especially in, in small companies like this. I mean, well, that's one thing. I mean, how many people, how many people actually work for, let's say you took banded Avery Greenhead gear. Isn't really its own. Is it, is there a, I don't even know. Is there, are there people that work just for Greenhead gear? I assume they're not. Now we're, we're everybody who's employed by uh, banded holdings is, is, you know, touching and representing all of the brands oh, yeah. um, that, that fall under, which is banded uh, Avery uh, GHG decoys, and then uh, the Avery sporting dog brand. So um, yeah, we're in, I can talk a little bit about that, that whole uh, acquisition and transition too. But at this point now we've kind of e- each one of those brands sort of fills uh, a category need within their niche. Obviously every sporting dog is where the sporting dog products yeah. are. GHD is where the decoys are. So it's all kind of holistic uh, now. It, it wasn't at, at first, but so yeah, th- there's no, um, there's no buddy, you know, Pete is, isn't just working for GHG. You know, he, he represents all the brands. So I mean, what is there like 15? I mean, like, that's one thing I think maybe people don't know. Like, man, when I was even when I was in, when I was in college thinking, God, I want to work for Avery. When I'm done, I was thinking that, you know, Avery was this big company and there was all these people and there was a corporate headquarters. And I mean, back then there was probably like 12 guys, maybe, I mean, maybe more mm-hmm. than that with rep, maybe with sales reps, maybe a little more than that, but you guys don't have a lot more than that right now as a whole group. Am I I'm probably pretty close to that? Yeah, I, I don't, th- there's definitely, so we've got kind of two places where, where stuff happens. Um, in Arkansas, where I, where I'm out of, we is really mostly my marketing team. And then our CEO and CFO uh, work out of this office. And then Memphis where, where the original Avery was um, our COO and a lot of the operations and warehousing is over there. So I'm not exactly sure how many people they have over there, but I would say, you know, 25 people, maybe total, um, total, yeah, 25, 30 people. Which is not many when you start. No, no. when you start. Not when you th- start when you talking five thousand, five thousand SKUs. It's not. It's not. It's not many. Uh, yeah, and I mean millions of dollars in sales, and however many vendors you have to deal with, and shipping, and I mean, all, everything that takes up time. That if someone who's ever worked in whether a retail environment or a warehouse environment or any, everything takes so much time and effort, and you start thinking that there's only 25 people pulling that off. And then on the other side of that, if you are someone looking to have a job in that side of life, it really limits what's out there for jobs. Cause I mean, out of those 25 people, I assume you probably don't have a ton of turnover in these jobs. I mean, maybe I'm sure once in a while, but for the most part, it's not like a McDonald's where you're cranking people over every two weeks and having to replace them. So there's not, yeah. there's not a lot of those jobs out there for guys. And that was kind of what I ran into is I was just like, oh yeah, there's really the only ones that ever come open are sales positions. And you know, that's, a, well, I didn't want to do that myself, especially back then I was way too shy to ever do that. So. Yeah, I'd say, uh, and that, I th- I'd say that's an accurate statement. If there's any, 
anywhere where there is turnover, not in our company, the, our guys have been here for a long time, but um, it's probably in that sales force. Mm-hmm. There's just, you know, different, they're, they're constantly uh, out on the road, making connections and relationships. And, and, you know, they, that, that they kind of evolve, but no, everything is really 80 for the 20. You know, we don't, we don't have the luxury of, ha- of adding people just to add people. So everyone's job is very specific and specialized. And now it, I, I can't, even think of anyone, um, any turnover really in, in my, in my head, nothing really even comes to mind. It's kind of the same people have been around forever. Yeah. So that's kind of what I've noticed. And, and, and I would lump, I mean, I would, I'm, I don't know the details of whether it's tangle free and sick is different cause they don't, they're a different thing, but, um, rig, I'm right. Any of the, any of these waterfowl companies that are out here doing this stuff, whether it's decoys or gear or clothing, I assume they're running the similar ship to what you guys do in terms of people and ratio of you know price sales dollars to employees. So there's not, and there's not that many waterfall companies out there way more than there was 15 years ago. But even now with that said, there's still I mean, what, maybe a dozen that are, that probably have more, there's probably maybe a dozen that have more than five employees. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of like the small, small type guys out there, but the big ones where you actually could go get a job, there's just not that many. So no, and, and and I think, like you said, I think people would be very surprised at how many uh, uh, folks are employed at at the, at those organizations. Yeah, the, how many aren't employed? You mean like the lack of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the number is much lower than 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 I I, I imagine people. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So like, I mean, that's what's one thing that's kind of interesting is like when someone calls, you know, a customer service at a place. Like, I mean, they're getting. They're getting real people. They're probably not getting, there's probably very few people dedicated to just customer service answering calls. I mean, they're probably in most places that's also maybe the marketing guy or maybe the, one of the warehouse guys or cause maybe the, the one person who kind of is supposed to answer the phones can't take as many calls. And so they're getting, they're getting the people that are making the product rather than just the people answering the phones. And it's probably yeah taken for granted. Uh, and I'll tell you, who they're talking to. Yeah. And I, and I'll, and yeah, that's a great point. And I'll tell you, as you said that it made me realize that's one of the, the toughest areas I think of, of a waterfowl business, a, a business operating in the waterfowl industry to staff and manage is, is customer service because during, during the season, you need a hundred of them. It's a hundred balls to the but, wall. But as soon as February hits, you know, the, the phone gets nothing, dusty. You know, <laughs> yeah, and it, and it shuts off almost like a light switch. It's just boom, it's done. And then you'll have some trickle in, but um, and so you can't. You, you, yeah, it's it's very challenging. And so we have um, a couple people who specifically handle customer service, and they're definitely overloaded during the um, during the season. But they're they're very skilled at it. Uh, they've been doing it a long time. So it, I, I see that as one of the most challenging areas of it, especially now you know, where sometimes people nowadays are reaching out to a business via Instagram before they even send an, you know, an wow. info to, to, to customer service or even pick up the phone, you know? So now you've got to have folks touching all those areas. And, and we try to right. have that one-on-one experience as much as possible. So it, it's, it's definitely, basically, yeah, definitely what, basically what that amounts to is more, more venues for people to complain. <laughs> exactly. but, but I mean, there's, 
So you've got even your Facebook, you've got Instagram, you have uh, the site's webpage. You've probably got like, do you guys sell through Amazon? I don't know if you do or not. We we don't. We okay, don't. Like there, that would be a place where people could put leave comments and expect to hear feedback. Um, probably live chat. I don't know if I guess I haven't. I'm trying to think. Is there a live chat option on your webpage? No, it's something we thought about, but um, then again, it's, you know, who... That's one more thing to watch yeah. and monitor. Yeah, exactly. Phone, exactly. Which, phones, which people hardly ever use anymore, but then emails and, yeah, it's daunting. I mean, I was I was a customer service manager in, at Cabela's for a long time, and just that, that whole realm of life is a, an interesting part to be involved in, so I'm not even, even going to think about that part of it. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's a that's a whole another topic. Yeah, it really is. Not not always the most enjoyable one too. Um, so like one thing I you know I, I always fancy myself as someone who I, I mean I love products. I was I'm always thinking of like ways to improve them or or I make my own. I make my own bolt blind. I've done this. I've done that. And so I always I, mean, I know how long it takes me to make to get something like a product or a, a thing that an item that I want to come to fruition, um, whether it's through the the thinking creative process and then the actual production. So I was wondering like, what is the process of, let's say you're going to make a new, any item you want to talk about, I mean, how long and what's kind of that process look like of getting something to the market from the time it's, you know, a, a thought in someone's brain. Yeah. Well, th- that's a great question. And, um, it very, it definitely varies by, by product and kind of what, you know, how technical it is and what, and where it's functioning at, you know, something like waiters, for example, um, that, that takes a lot of testing and time to develop, but let me, uh, I'll use a, a, a recent product that we have that I think would be a good example. And that's, a. Uh, with GHG decoys, we uh, launched a new uh, series of decoys this year uh, called the XD series. Um, right now, it's just the mallard decoys. We'll have uh, goose decoys and, and other duck species coming as well. But that that one, um, an example of that one. So how, how that starts is we obviously decide that we need to um, to have. To, to fill a to fill a need or, or advance our our product line and 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 fill a fill a place in the in the market with uh with the new product so we've identified that we've identified the product that we need then um with like decoys there's the the developmental stage where you're working with carvers to um carve these decoys and there's tons and tons of iterations that that go down um, to, to hone in these, um, poses and stuff to, to exactly what you want. So it starts with that, um, goes a little further. And then it's, once you have kind of your, your product developed of how you want it, then it's okay. Uh, how do we take this to our, um, our producers to have them make this, uh, in a way that's cost efficient that our customers can afford and, and, and all that. So then that, that, that's the next challenge is, is working with price points and, and where it will fall uh, competitively. And also, you know, just in general with, you know, we're, we're a, we're a B2B company primarily where we're selling our products to different retail partners. And so you've got to, you've got to allow for that margin and, and, 
those kind of things. So kind of, it goes over to the manu to the, uh, to the factories to kind of make a version of it. That's uh, able to be produced. And, And of course you're still fighting. Okay. The quality, we got to make it the best quality possible at, you know, we got to still got to hit this price too. So those things. And then from there, it's kind of, actually, as that's kind of going on, you're getting samples and different things like that. And, and you're, you're getting those out to different testers and people who, um, who are kind of running them through the ringer, finding really just trying to poke holes in the, in the methodology and find, find where there's going to be potential issues. So you're working through that kind of stuff. And then you're, um, you're from there, then then there's the whole, this is kind of where I come in on the marketing side is we, we, you've, everything is, is basically done a year in advance. So our products for that are coming out in 2019, we're actually working right now on the, on that catalog and developing those, those final, um, components to, to bring in that product to market, whether it's naming it or, uh, the, the writing the copy and the bullets and the descriptions and getting imagery and, and, and content and all of that kind of stuff. So that kind of stuff has to happen ahead of time so that when the product is, is released and launched, you're able to, you know, show it. So, um, that pro in that process, the, the testing process is probably what varies the most and what potentially, um, adds the most, most time to the, to the process. You're sometimes it's not, you find, you find needs in areas where you need improvement and it's not always quick and easy to make those improvements. You, you know, you got to wait for the factory to be able to run another rendition of it and, and all that stuff. So that, um, it's probably, you know, it's one thing that people probably take for granted is what testing is. I mean, cause this was Avery, this is before you guys were involved and before it was under banded. But I mean, anyone who's hunted since the early 2000s knows when, well, I guess it was Greenhead Gear technically, came out with those first new duck decoys and their, and their goose decoys that the paint was an issue. And it's probably almost been hard to live that down from 15 years ago because there evidently wasn't quite enough testing on that. And, and that was such a huge thing, even though I think it was probably overblown compared to what it really was. But if you don't put that time in, I mean, it costs you an immense amount of sales and then and you can never get that back, whether it's the goodwill or the the perception or whatever it is. It's just it's it, it costs you so much more to try to turn that back around. So the testing is like ungodly or important that people probably don't think maybe it happens as much as it does. Yeah. And, that, and that's a good point. And, and that, that's a, an example of a real life learning mm-hmm. that, um, yeah. of course I didn't, ha- fortunately I didn't have to experience it. Yeah. Um, cause that would have been a, that would have been tough from the marketing side, oh, but, yeah. um, but yeah, that, 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 that type of thing is a learning that, that our, that our team, because most of them ha- were all around at that time, um, you know, that they've, they found and now our testing process is completely different than it was back then. And a lot of times, the other um, kind of variable in this is that you've got a new product, you're excited about it, you want to get it to market as quick as possible. To one, because you want to, you want the opportunity for it to succeed in the marketplace, but then also because you you don't know if your competitor is working on it or or, or yeah. a similar version or something like that. So there's there's that there's that um, there's that piece too. Uh, but we found that 
we, we we're just not going to put out something that hasn't been tested and, and used enough to where we feel like, okay, th- this is, this is right. It's just not, it's just not worth it. Even if you want to, you know, fill a need for a dealer or, or get to market quick, it's just definitely something that we've taken it's a almost a catastrophic very, for I me mean, at some point. Yeah, no, it really is. In some, in some circumstances, it could be monetarily and just in, instantaneously monetarily, but also future down the road. I mean, I know there's people who still have ill will towards green hanger decoys over something that happened in 2003. So, yeah. so I mean, that's just one of those things like you just can never get that back, whatever it is. And so one thing about, and I guess being on the marketing side is, I mean, you're directly working to combat this, whatever, who, and anyone in any well, working for the cable company. I, <laughs> I definitely saw a ton of it, but trying to get to change perceptions um, like once you've lost a customer, I can't remember what the, for in the, our industry in the cable industry was, but to get that customer back, I mean, it cost, the cost was like four to five times more on the marketing side to get that customer back than it was to just retain them in the first place or to get just a completely brand new customer because you lost them for a reason and to get them to change that perception in their mind, it was I mean, almost almost impossible and it just wasn't feasible um on the economic side on the the business side to do it really for most for most places and they weren't and they probably weren't going to be your loyal um promoting customers at that point in time either so i keep no and, it, and that's a that's a good point and it's um and and back to kind of us taking a very um small but personal approach to customer service and stuff like that. We, we recognize that we look, we're not perfect. We, we make mistakes. We don't want to lose any customers and we, we absolutely will stand, you know, behind the product and, 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 and make it right in some way or some form. And, and I think that's how you have to handle that. Cause like you said, it, it is, um, you, you, losing customers is the, is the, the worst thing that could happen. Um, and a lot of times what I've found is that, you know, it, if you, admit that that the uh, mistake was made and show the customer that you you care about them and that you want to make it right it, that's that's sometimes all the team and there's there's definitely people who are you know never going to come back but they they probably weren't all that vested in it in the first place. And they just kind of, I mean, there's a lot of people that complain for the sake of complaining as well. So. They, well, and they were, they were buying something cause it was the cheapest at the time or they got it a, a sale or we had the same at Cabela's and we had people that would, that you never saw in the store, even though they lived in town, except during a huge sale event. And so like yep. those, and then, and then they were the ones that were the first to complain about something trivial. It seemed like, you're like, I mean, really? Are you kidding me? And like, those were the ones I didn't, but like when a customer that came in, you know, I saw him in the store every day and if he had a complaint or an issue or a question, you know, those were the ones that, you know, I mean, you want to take care of everybody, but those are the ones I really would focus on to make sure that we got them taken care of because, you know, they, they want to like the store and they do like it. And, and you like a lot of times, just a little bit of that ill will, that feeling of just that what something isn't right can really turn, turn against you. So it's, yeah, there's the different differences in customers are, um, I think you have to acknowledge them and and sometimes you can't, you're not going to please everyone, but you do what you can. 
Yeah. Yeah. Just absolutely uh, be there, listen, um, provide value and help. And, and ultimately that, that wins, you know, it, it, in the long run, you'll, you'll win some, I mean, you'll lose some, but ultimately that type of mentality will prevail, I think. And so that, yeah, that, that it, it's definitely, um, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely a, a, a beast of its own, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and every situation is every situation is different too. You know the oh for sure um, timing and yeah. where someone lives and the circumstance of how something broke and yada 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 and and everything and, and this has been in my own personal experience with dealing with businesses on a return or you know everything is an emergency to you when it's when it's right. happened to you but you know to translate that to the company side is not always the same thing and they might not take it the same way, but you have to be able to put yourself in their shoes and say, all right, we need to get this handled in this time frame and what they need and all that good stuff. And it's a chore. It's a battle. It's kind of that other side of life that eh, I want to, I want to stay away from the customers, <laughs> customer side of life. For, sounds, after 15 years, like, I just want to be away from that for a little bit here. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you have a little resentment towards customer service, Phil. No, not really. I mean, it, it was fun. Like a lot of times it was, it, depending on the customer, it could be, it was kind of fun to like help them work on a problem. Once you got them to realize that you were trying to help them. And there were some people yeah. that were, they, they hated you and, and no matter what you did, they were going to hate you. But a lot of folks, once you, you know, you made a, val- a, a valid effort to try to help them, and maybe do something that was, you know, not in the norms and they appreciate it. And it was super rewarding at that point. Um, but that wasn't all the time. And you, and sometimes what, what people thought was reasonable, wasn't reasonable to, to us. And see, so maybe had to find a common ground and who knows. Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah, it's, it can also be an opportunity to build a, uh, if handled correctly, oh, yeah, it huge. can be an opportunity to build, to build a lifelong customer too. Absolutely. Yeah. Some of our, some of the guys that were probably end up being our best customers were maybe ones that, and I, I ended up getting a lot of these because when I was a customer service manager or when I was the operations manager, I was the guy who got all of them. And, and if, you know, a lot of those folks that you work with, they ended up being the guys that came in all the time and they would seek you out if they had questions or if they wanted advice or and maybe even just not a complaint, but just, just to talk. And so it was kind of cool to see that side of it. I, I actually really appreciated that. And, and Doug, I would not be one of my one of my podcasts if a phone didn't ring during one of them. <laughs> I think every I'm just, every one I'm of them. It wasn't. Yeah, every. I, God, I had it on silent too. I wonder why. Oh, I turned it on so I could hear when you texted back, and I forgot to turn it off. Um, anyways, so well, that's enough about customer service. Um, so I was gonna say, so you guys aren't your duck season doesn't start for a long time, and I've been in Northwest Arkansas a handful of times. My girlfriend's family. Well, lives there so i've been there a handful of times and as i drive through there and everybody says so when i tell people that my girlfriend lives in arkansas everybody's me like oh wow duck hunting you must love that i'm like no she's from she's actually from uh, uh little rock which is not which is close to the duck stuff but she never i'd never go there because all of her family lives in uh fayetteville area now and I'm like, no, anytime we're ever there for that, it's about as far removed from duck country as you could be. And uh, so I was kind of wondering where 
if duck hunting is a big thing in that corner of the state? Like, I mean, is it even remotely as big as the rest of the state? Do you think? So, yes and no. Um, of course, uh, for, for the for the listeners who just give them a little context. So, so Northwest Arkansas is up in uh, what you call the hills, um, not not far from the the Ozark Mountains, and part of it kind of extends in there. So, the, there's the duck hunting is not good here. However, there's a ton of industry here um, with Walmart, uh, JB Hunt, Tyson. Um, so, so there's a lot of a lot of uh, people here, and what I've found is that there's a ton of duck hunters that live here. Um, you just have to travel, you know, down to hours away, uh, yeah. you know, a couple hours away to get into some some duck stuff. You can go west to Oklahoma. Uh, Missouri's not not far. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of good places you can get to within a couple hours. But yeah, here specifically, the duck hunting is not not great. It's that's the same way. I think with there's quite a few places like that where you know you had the the people end up living in the city, which is not always great for it. But they're try to maintain a distance where you still have the hunting. Where I actually live right kind of in the hunting and was lucky enough to. But like the town I live in, I mean, I'm not going to go find a a fairly any kind of a high paying job in the town I live in. Most likely, I'd have to travel. 30 to four, 30 miles either direction to find a, a town that would have that. But then again, you have to deal with, then you have to drive further to duck hunt. So I kind of found, struck a good balance with that myself. But, um, so are you guys like when you're hunting there, I mean, I, like you personally, do you guys like, do you hunt you and buddies? Do you guys hunt, are you hunting timber? Are you hunting fields like rice field type stuff? Are you hunting marshes? Like I don't, I don't really know outside of the outside of what would be the prairie of Arkansas. And I guess I know a little bit of like central East central uh, Oklahoma. I've been in that area and hunted a bit. Um, I assume it's probably different than either of those. Yeah. So mostly the, the most areas that I hunt are um, flooded grain fields, uh, rice, primarily um, timber when the, uh, when the ducks are using it and then kind of some general kind of just your typical wetlands type, type, uh, scenario, not, uh, there probably is some, if you, if you went West into Oklahoma, there probably is some dry field stuff. I, I don't do any of that. Um, even though that's all I used to do, I don't do much of that anymore. So yeah, I, I, um, I, I do a lot. I probably spend most of my time in a flooded rice field just because it's, it's the most consistent, but, if if the opportunity arises, I'm definitely going to the timber. I'm gonna be standing up next to a tree, kicking some, kicking some mm-hmm. water. It's a, uh, it's one of those things that I've I've hunted Arkansas timber four years, five years, something like that, four or five times, and it's one of those things that I absolutely love doing it. I don't, however, think it's the thing I would want to do every day for my everyday duck hunting. There's something. It, being from being around here, I need to be able to see the horizon once in a while and see ducks at a distance rather than just right on top of me. So I think that's maybe what part of it is, but it's such a unique deal that one of these days I'm just going to do a podcast entirely on, um, hunting the woods and find, get a couple of guys and maybe Keith would, Keith and you are going to be a good one on that. 
Um, yeah. Just kind of, sure. there's a lot, like there's a lot of folks who've never done it and it's not that we, you probably need more people in the Arkansas woods roaming around, but actually now the, um, game and fish in Arkansas, they instituted some regulations on uh, limiting the number of non-residents and the days you can hunt. So I, I honestly am glad to see that. Um, even as a non-resident, it, will, it would, it would affect me I and mean, I'm probably not going to hunt over 30 days in Arkansas anyways, but I'm glad to well, see you've it. Seen it. You've seen how that can be proactive in, in your own state. Oh, that's South Dakota, exactly. Same way, right? Yep. South Dakota, we have a, like a lottery system and it's, and it's controlled and it's super beneficial. And I, I actually think it's beneficial both to the residents and the non-residents because when you come here, you have, you, you're guaranteed, not guaranteed, but you're going to have a way different experience than if you go to North Dakota where the licenses are unlimited and you cross that border and there's a hunter or two at every field and there's almost damn near a drag race to uh, find, to get to a farmer's house, to get onto a, a pit cornfield that's got 5,000 mallards circling it. Like we don't, we typically won't have that here because there's just not enough people hunting and it, it really preserves the quality of the hunting for everybody who comes. Like even when I lived in Minnesota, I was more than happy to have the lottery in South Dakota that when we drew it every other year, or every year, every third year, whatever it was back then, um, we were happy because we knew that when we got that sucker in our pocket, we were going to come out here and have a good hunt. And we basically did every single time. Whereas when you went to North Dakota, we still had good hunts, but man, it was, it was a lot more stressful because you were, you were getting the fields at four thirty because someone else was going to be there probably. And, it was a different deal. So I'm glad to see that Arkansas did it. I mean, I would, even if it meant me only hunting there every other year or, or maybe less days every year, whatever it happened to be, I would, I would gladly rather go there and have those hunts be world-class than go there every year and hunt a bunch of days and have the hunts be half-ass. So I'm, I was kind of glad to see that, but yeah, the woods, yeah. Is, <laughs> wood, the woods is a special place. It's a lot of people are very, very touchy on the subject. So I, I won't, I won't, weigh in on my opinion but there's definitely there's definitely advantages to it that, that that can't be denied for sure yeah i mean i would i would completely understand why someone wouldn't wouldn't want uh wouldn't want to see it but you know i guess i'm i wouldn't i guess i've you know i haven't really read enough on forums or whatever to know like what the general consensus is but that's my take so if people are mad let me know i guess but you're gonna get it now for <laughs> oh boy watch out my email will light up uh, i'm i'm not i didn't i didn't put any input on either either way so i really don't have anything to say about it it just happened to happen but yeah, it was not i'm okay with it happening though i will say that so just like i was okay with the with the uh, mojos and all that stuff happening there too so help preserve a little bit of uh quality hunting i think in the woods again so it all helps, yep. but cool, man. Well, I think I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to let you go. I got to go do some scouting. got to find a spot for tomorrow. So I made the mistake of not scouting last night. Well, I couldn't cause I was recording a podcast and just went to a place I had permission for and, uh, without looking and that was a bomb shot one shot one wood duck and I, uh, Made a, made a not a rookie mistake, but I guess a busy guy mistake and didn't scout. So I'm paid for it. So I'm going to go put some miles on tonight and track some down. Well, I de definitely don't feel bad for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're not hunting it. for a while. 
<laughs> I'm sitting here at my desk, um, shaking my head right now. <laughs> I'm probably not going to get a lot of sympathy on that on that side of life. No. So I'm not really going to push that anymore. <laughs> uh cool man well uh thanks for joining me um we'll have to do it again for sure um maybe so we'll get keith maybe and get a little uh timber timber talk going and and i try not to do i try to avoid the instructional side of life but i do think uh that would be one where learning advice from people who've done it and, and whether it's about you know how to where to even start what to do, what things you're looking for, all that kind of stuff. I know before we went, man, I was just overwhelmed and we just said, we just have to go and just do it. And that might, that yeah. might be, that might just be the biggest piece of advice that I could give someone is just go and do it and just learn and be, don't be afraid to fail. But from there, just ob- go. Yeah. Just go. Yep. There's obviously now some, the, what's that? Yeah. That he, he'd be, uh, Keith would be, a, a, you'd, you'd enjoy that. You definitely should have him on. I mean, there's, <clears throat> there's things even about the timber, like that I never even realized before I started, uh, hunting it more that, you know, so much of it is even just picking the right, um, you know, the right trees for the break and not, not necessarily the tree that you're going to be leaning up against, but, you know, even like, um, you know, use certain trees are going to serve as, as blockades yep. to, to find the bird, just all kinds of little intricate, um, details like that, that you just don't really even think Year, about. If you years of experience are the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. That's the only way you'd ever learn it. Or listen to a podcast where someone tells you about it. <laughs> That's right. Cool, man. Well, I'll let you roll. I'm going to get on the move here. So, appreciate you coming on. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will uh, catch you all next week. Have a good one.